brothers and sisters, even if uh, many of you or haven't heard of too many Christian authors and preachers, uh, I wonder if at very least you may have heard of Tim Keller and R.C. Sproul. Even if you've basically never listened to Christian preachers or authors, uh, I imagine many of you are familiar with these two names. Uh, Tim Keller was one of the most well-known Christian preachers and authors around the world. And just recently, uh, the Lord called him home. Tim Keller, I bring him up, because he mentioned about this passage, this strange passage that we just read together, that this text, when he finally understood it, was one of the most comforting and most life-changing passages for him and the whole Bible. That's a remarkable claim for anyone, but for Tim Keller in particular, what a remarkable claim. R.C. Sproul, his comments on this passage were actually even stronger. Uh, For years, R.C. Sproul consistently said that this passage was so meaningful to him that if for some bizarre reason it ever happened to him, that he was trapped on a deserted island, or if he ended up in uh, solitary confinement somewhere, and for some reason he was only able to have one chapter of the Bible with him for the rest of his days, he would want this chapter with him. Isn't that a remarkable statement? The reason why R.C. Sproul explained was because in that sort of a situation, what he would need most, above all things, is some comfort. It's some assurance. He would need confidence in God and in his plans to love him and to save him and to keep him and care for him no matter what. He would need this passage because he would need to know he could be sure about the God he was putting his trust in. And that's exactly what Abraham was asking for in this passage that we just read. And maybe at times you've asked this question as well. How can we be sure of God? God, you've made all kinds of wonderful claims, all kinds of wonderful promises, all kinds of assurances about who you are and what you're like, that you're worth trusting, that you're good. But how can I really be sure that you love me? How can I know for sure that you're good? How can I be confident that you'll save me and care for me? That's what our passage today is all about. Abraham asking God, how can I be sure? And we'll explore this in two parts. First, we'll see Abram's doubting questions. And then secondly, God's definitive response. So first of all, Abram's doubting questions. We need to remember to start off this passage... Abram is afraid. Remember, Abram is living in Canaan, this promised land, as a sojourner. He's a stranger. He's uh, living in tents in a strange land. And yet, as I mentioned in Genesis 14, right before this passage, he's also just made some incredibly powerful enemies of the locals. Abram had just picked a fight with four of the greatest kings in the land to save his nephew Lot after he was kidnapped in battle. And so now it seems Abram is terrified. Not only is he a stranger in the land, but now Abram seems to be an enemy in the land. That's why most commentators feel that he must be afraid, at least that's the beginning of his fear. But it's very clear from our text, Abram had something else 
disturbing his mind as well. He wasn't just afraid of these local kings around him. The text makes very clear he was afraid about his God. God comes to Abraham at the beginning of our text, and he says, Fear not, Abram, for I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And what does Abram, Abraham, you guys know, the, the great hero of faith, what does he say to these wonderful words? Does he say, I'm worried, Lord, but with you as my shield, I'm sure I'll be fine. Thank you for this renewed assurance. No, he says something dramatically different. Abram is doubting God himself. He's doubting the promises he heard in Genesis 12 when God called him. He's doubting God's plan for salvation, it seems. Abram asks, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus, my servant. If you recall, if you were here, when we went over Genesis chapter 12, God had promised Abram a child. And he had promised that through that child, God would make Abram and his family into a great nation. And he had also promised through that nation, God would bless every nation. Through that nation, he would bring salvation to his people throughout the world. And here, when God promises Abram, uh, the man of faith, a uh, reward, he scoffs. He asks God, what could you possibly give me? You promised me this son, and you haven't given him. If you give me any more stuff, it will just end up going to my servant Eliezer when I inevitably, inevitably die. We need to remember, Abraham was very old at this point, old already when he was called. And it's likely been about 10 years already. Can you see where Abram is coming from with this question? God called him to leave his tribe, his family, his home when he was already old. And he promised him a great plan of salvation, starting with a son. But now he's been living, not in his nice house in Ur, but he's been living in tents for nearly 10 years. And still, it seems nothing. But yet, we need to be careful here. Uh, I misunderstood this at first, and uh, other commentators, uh, it seems, emphasize uh, this a little bit too much. And I wonder if maybe you've um, overemphasized something here too. Because some commentators, they say that here, Abraham is absolutely right. That it's been 10 years, and God has given him absolutely nothing. That Abraham left everything behind, and Abraham doubts now because God so far hasn't done anything for him. But this is overemphasized. It's the wrong way to look at this. It's true that Abraham here feels as though God has given him nothing, and so he doubts. But has God, think about it, has God actually not given him anything? During his time in Canaan, God had cared for Abram and his family in a foreign land. He's kept him safe and even made him incredibly wealthy. Maybe you know the stories leading up to our passage today. When there was a famine, God preserved Abram in Egypt. When Abram and his wife Sarai went down to Egypt and Abram didn't trust God, God saved his life, saved his wife's life, 
and had them leave with great possessions. Right before this, as we heard, God had enabled Abram to save his nephew against four great kings and their tremendous army. Is Abram right to believe that God hadn't been keeping his promises? His promises to bless those who blessed him. His promises to curse those who curse him. Here when Abram was tired and upset and doubting, it is God himself, notice, who comes to him and who says to him, Fear not, Abram, your reward will be very great. Brothers and sisters, this is important for each of us. We need to remember that sometimes it feels like God hasn't been with us. It feels like he's not giving us anything he's promised. But really, honestly, truthfully, he has been with us and giving us so much this whole time, even when we don't see it. When I studied this, it reminded me of something I once read from Charles Spurgeon. Maybe you've heard of Charles Spurgeon too, the the prince of preachers, he was called. Once Spurgeon was working on a sermon, and he was just exhausted. You ever felt just exhausted? He felt like God hadn't been giving him anything. He had nothing to write. He was so busy. He was so tired. He had so much on his plate, so much to do. And he just felt like God wasn't with him, that he hadn't given him anything to work with, that he was all on his own. But then, by God's grace, when Spurgeon was feeling like this, he looked up over to his bookshelf, And he saw nine volumes of the sermons that he had written in the past. He remembered that frequently when he was writing those nine volumes of sermons, he had felt the exact same way, like he was on his own. Like this time, God wasn't going to be with him. He wasn't going to help. But he saw this nine-volume set of sermons that God had helped him with and that God had used powerfully. By then, Spurgeon's sermons each week were being translated into 20 different languages. They were being distributed around the world, tens and thousands of copies being distributed every week. So many times, Spurgeon had felt empty. He felt alone, like he was doing this on his own. And yet, time and time again, he wasn't. He was wrong. God was working powerfully the whole time. Charles Spurgeon, you might know, he ended up dying quite young, at 57 years old. Yet his sermons ended up filling 63 volumes. He was estimated during his lifetime to have preached to over 10 million people. And his sermons, decades and decades later, are still used and quoted around the world. Spurgeon felt like God had left him alone. Did he? Had he? Or was he working powerfully the whole time? And Spurgeon just didn't feel it. The same was true with Abram in our passage. He felt like God wasn't keeping his promises. He wasn't there. And yet, we see here in our passage something remarkable. Something remarkable about the nature and compassion of our God. Because God doesn't say, How dare you? Abram. Don't you know who I am? God doesn't say, excuse me, Abram, who do you think you are to question whether I'm keeping my promises? 
He doesn't say, do I need to show you all that I have been done for, uh, doing for you, all that I have done for you, I am doing for you at this time. Instead, what does God do in our passage when questioned by this weak old man? God gently takes Abram, and he leads him outside in a vision. And he tells him to look at the stars. And he asks Abram, can you count them? Maybe, maybe even recently you've gone camping. Maybe you've gone somewhere without a lot of light pollution. Have you ever looked up at the stars? Have you ever seen the Milky Way? A blanket of stars, billions of stars in the sky. Well, God here, he doesn't rebuke Abraham. He shows him the stars. He doesn't rebuke Abraham, and he doesn't walk back his promises either, like we sometimes do. But he powerfully and clearly and mercifully reaffirms them. He says, look at the stars, Abraham, so shall your offspring be. Not from Eliezer, your servant, someone in your household, but from your own body, just like I said before. And as we read in verse 6, Abraham being shown this by the God who created those stars. In verse 6 we read, Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And if you're familiar with the Bible, especially the New Testament, you likely know this is one of the most important verses in the whole Bible. This explains God's plan to save his people through this promised offspring. Abraham looked into the sky and he saw a star there for God's people. He saw a star for you and for me. And he saw a star for Jesus Christ the one who's later called the bright and morning star. And there are two things to notice here about Abram's faith, just quickly. First, we should notice this isn't a one-time thing. The Hebrew makes it very clear. The word here means that Abraham kept believing God. This was his ongoing, normal response to God's promises. He hears the word of the Lord, even when it seems tough, and he believes Secondly, it's clear here, this faith, even of Abraham, the man of faith, it was far from perfect. Abram here, he had listened to God. He had come to Canaan, and he had already failed some tests, we need to remember. And here again, he doubts God. And then again, we'll see one verse later, even after God reassures him, he questions God again, asking, God, how can I know for sure? Abram's faith here, it's not the strongest yet. And even though it wasn't the strongest and it wasn't the most mature faith yet, nevertheless, it was faith. And nevertheless, we read these remarkable words and they should blow us away. That Abraham believed the Lord and God credited it to him as righteousness. He counted him as right and holy in his sight. Paul explains this in the New Testament in Romans and Galatians, that this is how God has always worked with sinful, fallen people like us. From Abraham all the way to today. The way that God makes us righteous, he makes us pure and holy and spotless in his sight, is simply by faith. Not necessarily mature faith, not necessarily 
perfect or unwavering faith, simply by faith, by knowing God and trusting God and his plan of salvation, his promise of a seed who could bring us back to his presence. As Sinclair Ferguson explains on this passage, we see something phenomenal here. By faith, even by Abraham's utterly imperfect faith in this coming Savior, Abraham reaches ahead by the hand of faith over 2,000 years. And by the hand of faith, he grabs hold of Jesus Christ. There in his sin and his weakness and unbelief, there it is all washed away. And Christ's righteousness is credited to his account instead. And brothers and sisters, the same is true for us. This is the way back to God. When we believe in Christ, the hand of faith reaches back and grabs hold of him. Our sin, our weakness, our shame, our guilt is washed away. And his righteousness, by God's grace, is credited to your account. You're accounted as spotless before this holy God's presence. Here we have a great comfort and a great assurance. But there's so much more to come in this passage. Both Tim Keller and R.C. Sproul, they say that their greatest hope and their greatest comfort and assurance and trust in God, even in times of doubt, is actually found in what comes immediately after us. And we'll explore that in our second and final point, God's definitive response to Abram's doubts. We see here Abram, like I mentioned, he still has some doubt. God says in verse 7, after showing Abram the stars and reaffirming his promises, the Lord says to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And yet Abram says, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? I do believe, but help my unbelief, Lord. Lord, how can I be sure that you will keep your promises? Again, we need to realize this, in a sense, it, it could be hurtful, couldn't it? Imagine for a second uh, somebody that you love, and you keep on telling them that you're going to do something. You're assuring them that you for sure will do it. But imagine your spouse or friend or child, they keep doubting you. They keep questioning. They keep asking for more assurances. Well, here, our God still responds with such beautiful patience. He's happy in this instance to give more assurances. We read in Hebrews 6, verse 17, likely about this passage, that God wants Abraham and his descendants to have more confidence. We read there, he, that is God, decided to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose. What a comfort that that is for us who can struggle with weakness and doubts as well and bring them to God for more assurance. But here God says something strange. To give him this uh, unchangeable or this uh, uh, more convincing uh, proof of his unchangeable character, our God responds to Abram by giving him a shopping list. Did you notice that? Isn't that strange? God tells Abraham, okay, Abraham, you want to be sure. Well, verse 9, we read, bring me a heifer, three years old, uh, a goat, three years old, female, a ram, three years old, 
a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. To us, this is extremely strange, isn't it? This is a weird story. But to Abraham, this would have been amazing and comforting. Because notice in our passage that God doesn't seem to give any further instructions. It seems most commentators believe that Abraham, once he heard this, he knew exactly what was going on already. And so Abram goes and he gets these five animals. Uh, he, he cuts them in half, except for the birds, because they're too small. And he lines up the pieces in a row, in a, a sort of uh, an aisle, so that you can walk through the middle of each of these animals. So imagine this, this strange scene, the, this gross, probably smelly, bloody scene, with Abraham waiting nearby, driving away the vultures, that are trying to help themselves to these animals. What is going on here? Well, think of it this way. Today, if someone tells you they're going to do something, and you want to be absolutely sure that they will do it, that you can hold them to it, what do you do? Well, often what you'd do is you'd write up a contract. You write down the terms. Okay, you're going to do this and this, and I'm going to give you this much money, and then... What you do at the end is you both sign on the dotted line, and there you have your assurance. You can hold them to it. The terms can't change. But back then, they had a different way of making uh, a formal agreement. They had a few different ways, but this was one of them. This was really one of the most shocking and most solemn ways to make an arrangement uh, a, a legal arrangement, but also just a, a covenant, a personal relationship. We read in Jeremiah 34 why this is so shocking and so solemn. We read the meaning behind this kind of a covenant ceremony. In Jeremiah 34, we read about the Israelites, God's people, uh, and they had been breaking for a long time one of God's laws. And when they realized what they were doing, they made a covenant, literally in the Hebrew, they cut a covenant with God. They took animals, they cut these animals in half, as bizarre as that is, and they walked between them, and they swore to God, we will not sin in this way anymore. And yet we read, almost immediately afterwards, they did, they did it again. And so in Jeremiah 34, God tells them, that he's going to hold them to their promise. And there we read the shocking message of this type of a covenant relationship. When they walked through those cut-up animal pieces, what they were saying was this. They were saying before God, if we do not keep our promises, may God make us like these animals. And so when they broke the covenant, God said, I'm going to do exactly what you asked me to. We read in Jeremiah 34, The men who did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and pass between its parts. I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives. Their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. Here in Genesis 15, God is going to make a covenant with Abraham. He recognizes the process. He's going to make a personal yet an utterly formal agreement. And in the most solemn, the most serious, the most vivid way. 
And it's important to realize one more thing. Many commentators suggest that sometimes these covenants, like in this instance, were made between two unequal parties. And so you have to picture that a king came into a nation and defeated it. And so the victorious king or the emperor, uh, when they had conquered the land, they would make this sort of a covenant with the conquered kings, with their new subjects. But in this instant, typically, according to commentators, the conquering kings, the, the greater, the victorious party, they would typically just sit back and watch. They were in complete control of the situation. Why should they swear anything? It was the subjects, the weaker, conquered kings. They were called to walk between the pieces of the animals and say, I will be loyal to you. And if not, may my body be ripped apart. May I be cut off. May I die under a curse and my body be disrespected, left for the beasts. But here we get to what is utterly amazing about this passage and what should blow each and every one of us away when we read it. Here we read the thing that was so transforming for Tim Keller and what made it the favorite passage of R.C. Sproul. In this dramatic scene here with these dead animals, with all the bugs and the birds and the blood, finally the sun begins to set and it's certainly time for the parties to go through the pieces and swear their reliability at the threat of their very own lives. And at this point, we read in verse 12, God puts Abram to sleep. A deep, deep sleep. And as the darkness of night comes upon him, we read in verse 12, Behold, a dreadful and great darkness can be translated terror fell upon him. And we read, God said, Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners. They will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will deliver them. And they shall come back in the fourth generation after you have died in peace. And with this thick darkness, this great terror, we read R.C. Sproul's absolute favorite, most comforting verse. Verse 17 of our text. And a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. The terms here are hard to translate and to picture, but what's important is very obvious, very clear. What do we know about the darkness, about the terror, about the fire, and about the smoke? We already heard about this earlier. We sang about it earlier. earlier. We heard it when we read God's covenant law. This should remind us of God's presence drawing near to his people. You can think of the wilderness where God leads his people with a pillar of cloud and a fire. You can think of Mount Sinai, what we read earlier with the Ten Commandments. God drew near to his people, and there we read together. There were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, not too different than a fire pot, and the whole mountain trembled. 
Now, brothers and sisters, picture this scene in your mind, this covenant ceremony, the solemn oath. Who or what passes through the pieces? It is not Abram like you would expect. It's not God making Abram promise to keep up his end of the bargain, and then God will keep up his. It's not Abram promising he'll keep it on his life, or else he'll be torn apart, cut in two, cursed and cut off and killed and ripped to shreds. Shockingly, almost, almost unbelievably, it's God who goes through the pieces. Can you imagine that? God himself says to Abraham, I will do this. And if I don't bless you, if I don't give you this land, if I don't give you this heir who will be a blessing to all nations and save every one of my people, if I don't bless all nations and save my people through you, may I myself be killed. May I myself be torn apart. May I myself be cut off. Brothers and sisters, this is why R.C. Sproul and Tim Keller and I and hopefully you can cling to this verse with everything that we've got. Because finally we have true assurance. God makes a contract. He makes a covenant, it's called in our text. A personal and legal relationship with Abraham. And he says for all of it, he says for your part and for my part, I'm signing the whole thing. You don't have to sign it. Abram, I will save you, and I will save others through you. I swear it on my own life, on my own blood. And honestly, people struggle with this passage because it's hard to even wrap around our heads around what this could possibly mean. What could it mean for God to say, I will certainly do this on my own life, or God who could never die. But we can start to wrap our head around it when we think ahead to another time, about 2,000 years later, when again great oppressive darkness and terror came down, this time in the middle of the day, this time not on Abraham, but on the promised bright and morning star on the cross. Brothers and sisters, God perfectly kept his end of the covenant. He was faithful. But you and me and Abraham and our father Adam before us, we were the ones who were unfaithful. We were the ones who deserved to be cut up and cut off and cursed and left for dead. But yet God promised to do all of it to save us. He promised to send his son, his son to be beaten and bloodied and cut and killed. And as we read in Isaiah 53, he sent his son to be cut off. Jesus Christ was cursed so we might walk free and we might be blessed. And there is our assurance, even in hard times, even in times when we don't see God working blessings, when we don't see all of God's promises coming to fruition. Did God keep all of his promises? There are many of them here to Abraham. He did. Did Abraham have a child, even when it seemed impossible? He absolutely did. 
Did that child end up becoming a great nation? Absolutely. Was it easy for Abram or for his children or for that nation? No. As God says, they were called to sojourn, to wander, to suffer for hundreds of years. Even as we are at times called to suffer today. But brothers and sisters, God was trustworthy for all those centuries. Even to the point of shedding his own blood. And he wants us to simply trust in him. Trust in his plan to bring us back into his presence. That's what we read, we already referenced it in Hebrews 6. When God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. For in all disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God decided to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, to us, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So we who have fled for refuge, fled for refuge from the curse we deserved, we might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope we have before us. Because we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of our souls. A hope that enters into the inner place beneath the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Brothers and sisters, I'm sure Abraham was amazed by this blood oath that God gave him, even though he certainly couldn't have understood it as well as we do now. But Abraham did trust God, and as God promised, he counted him righteous, spotless. And as God promises here, Abraham died in peace. John Kelvin on this text mentions that there's no way that God means in verse 15 that Abraham just died peacefully in his sleep or something like that. John Galvin mentions this must mean that Abram died with spiritual peace in his very soul. He was confident in God's love for him, his plan for salvation, that his guilt was washed away once and for all. He was confident in the God who had promised him a savior, and he was ready to go home. To conclude, I mentioned earlier that Spurgeon, uh, when he started to doubt God's work in, uh, of faithfulness in his life, he looked to what God had done through him previously. But there's somewhere else that Spurgeon looked to for confidence and assurance in God. Often and more and more often, as Charles Spurgeon began to get older, he would actually turn to, instead of his great body of works and books and sermons, he would just simply turn back to his conversion. Spurgeon had always uh, grown up in a church. Uh, he had grown up hearing the gospel. Uh, but as a teenager, he really began to wrestle with it. He, he wrestled with his own sin and guilt and unworthiness. He, he, he wrestled with the reasonableness uh, of it all. He, he wrestled with doubt in God and his promises. Eventually, Spurgeon just wanted answers. He wanted to be sure somehow of who God was. And he wanted to be sure that all of his guilt could be taken away. But he didn't know how. He didn't know what to do. One Sunday, Spurgeon sent out, uh, set off to go to church. And on his way, he got caught in a great snowstorm. And so he turned down a street, and he went to a little church nearby that just happened to be open. Uh, but there were only 12 people there because huge snowstorm. Makes sense. A lot of people couldn't make it. Not even the regular preacher could make it. And so a lay person, frantically, he needed to pull together a message at the last moment. By human standards... It was the wrong church. 
It was the wrong congregation. It was the wrong weather. And it was the wrong preacher. But in God's perspective, everything was exactly right. This man gave a very simple message, calling the congregation for about 10 minutes to stop looking to themselves, to stop looking to the world, to stop even looking simply to Scripture. But rather, he urged them to look through Scripture to Jesus Christ and there to find salvation. Everything that they needed to be saved. The man said, look to Jesus. Look at him in the garden in agony, pouring out his soul to death for you. Look at him dying on a tree, dying for sinners like us who couldn't save ourselves. Look at him risen again from the dead and ascended into heaven and ruling on high. Look to him and live. Spurgeon left that church service and the change was almost immediate. For the first time, he was looking to Jesus and there he found the assurance and joy that could last a lifetime. God had really promised to do everything necessary to save his people. He had staked his life upon it. And in Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, he has done it. That was Abraham's hope. That was Spurgeon's hope. That was Tim Keller's and it was R.C. Sproul's hope. May it be our hope too. Amen.